Think about a time when time seems to move too slowly. Well, when you're bored, it feels as though time is moving too slowly. When you're sort of anxious and restless, it maybe feels that time is moving too quickly. And despondency is really this inability or unwillingness to be just in the present moment as it is. There is something really unique and special and irretrievable about the present moment. As a Christian, I would say it's special because it's where Christ dwells. It's the span of time we are given to respond to Christ and his love. And it's the only span of time in which we can do that. When we sort of exercise our capacity to love and to turn towards Christ in time, we actually are stepping into the age to come. This modern world is of particular interest to women. Betwixt, at the intersection of faith and culture. Hi friends, welcome to the Betwixt podcast. I'm Deb Gregory. My guest today is Nicole Rokas. So I recorded this episode before the COVID-19 pandemic hit, but I think that the insights presented in this episode might be particularly helpful for anyone listening amidst quarantine life. Today we're talking about time and despondency. So have you ever noticed how time sometimes feels fluid? I've heard many people say that during this pandemic, time just feels weird. Sometimes it seems to fly by, and other times it just drags along. Perhaps you've struggled to stay focused, or you've sought distraction in, say, you know, your phone or the cookie jar. If that's you, you're not alone. And if your prayer life has really struggled to stay anchored, you're not alone. And if the monotony of the stay-at-home order has left you feeling anxious or angry or despairing at times, all of these things feed into what early Christians call despondency. In this episode, Nicole and I talk about the relationship between time and despondency and three ancient cures for despondency. Well, hi, Nicole. Hi. Dr. Nicole Rokas is a historian and adjunct faculty member at the Orthodox School of Theology at Trinity College in Toronto. She is the author of the books Time and Despondency, Regaining the Present in Faith and Life, and Under the Laurel Tree, Grieving Infertility with Saints Joachim and Anna. And her newest book is A Journal of Thanksgiving, Record Three Years of Gratitude in a Sentence a Day. Nicole is also the host of the Time Eternal podcast. It's one of my favorite podcasts. I hope you'll check it out. And she's co-host of the Help My Unbelief podcast, along with her husband, Basil. I was so excited when you first wrote me because I didn't know about your podcast, um, but you described it as a podcast that focuses on on points of liminality. And I'm like, someone knows that word <laughs> like in their active vocabulary. Because I, I feel like every time I use the word liminal or liminality, people look at me like, what are you talking about? <laughs> I have to explain. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I was really delighted and not surprised at all that liminality was part of your vocabulary because I feel like it's all over your work. Yeah, it is. But also the things that you are interested in and uh, a student of, I think are really illuminating for our time and place. Can you tell me a little bit about yourself and what it is that you do and study? Yeah. So when I was studying history, the big question that I was always interested in is time. And not just in the sort of abstract sense in that I was studying the past. But I was always interested in how people in the past viewed and understood time. Mm. You know, clocks haven't been around forever. Calendars as we know them haven't been around forever. Cell phones, not on our hip. I don't know a lot of people who are using sundials anymore or would even know how to use (laughs) one. But it also has, time has always kind of been a problem for me. Even Mm. going back to when I was a little kid, I I just was always really anxious about it and Mm. always hung up with being on time and feeling like time was going too fast. And that obviously ties into questions of mortality and 
I was also really afraid of death. So by the time I got into graduate school, I was kind of like just perplexed by time in that sense. And then also in the sense that time seems like a bit of a social construct at times. Like, why is it polite to be on time? What does it mean to be on time? Why do we refer to 12 months instead of 13? And, and like just all of these <laughs> things. Yeah. So are you saying like today we have this kind of precision mode with time, but in the past it wasn't even approached that way? Well, I didn't know. I just, I know. felt like those were questions we didn't really ask. So I started asking them and I ended up writing my dissertation about how people in 16th century Germany perceived the span of time of a year, like how they understood what the year was, how they measured it. Oh, um, yeah. It would take a long time to unpack mm -hmm. that as dissertations go. Yes. But <laughs> it opened my mind to all of the ways that our perceptions of time can change over time and over history. And at the time, I was in the process of converting to Eastern Orthodoxy from a, a more evangelical background. Okay. And I never grew up with the liturgical understanding of time. I never grew up with like any liturgy to speak of, whether it was liturgical services or feast days or liturgical cycles of the year or anything like mm -hmm. that. So orthodoxy was opening my mind. Orthodoxy is highly liturgical. In fact, mm. it's probably the most liturgically oriented mode of Christianity that you will find. So it was a totally new experience of time. As I got towards the end of my PhD, I decided that I would start to take what I had learned and started to think about with time from history and apply it to my experience of liturgy, apply it to theology, church history. And that's where my first podcast, Time Eternal, started. My sort of underlying argument is that time and eternity aren't these dichotomous sort of neoplatonic realms. They're connected. Hmm. And when we exercise our capacity to love and to turn towards Christ in time, we actually are stepping into the age to come. Hmm. You know, in evangelicalism, I always understood eternity and heaven and things like that as where we go after we die, if we're, okay. if we're lucky. I mean, that's how I grew up, that time yeah. and eternity are two different things. God is eternal, but we live within time right. and temporality. So let's start with the question that you start with in your podcast. Uh, what is time? So how, how would you describe time? What is time? Well, the cliche way to answer that is to refer to the quote by St. Augustine, who said in his confessions, I know what time is, but as soon as somebody asks me, I can't explain it. <laughs> and I would say that holds true. That's true, <laughs> so yes. Probably like the most true statement anyone has made about time. But I think that even though we live in like the 21st century, I think most of us still have a fairly platonic view of time where we associate time with the earthly realm, the realm of change, decay, mortality, all of that. And, and then we tend to see eternity as somewhere up there and out there where things are perfect, it's timeless, things don't change. But the problem there is then, what do you do with the incarnation? Okay. Because if God is eternal, if God is sort of above time, how could he send his son into the world of time? That becomes sort of a problem or something you have to reckon with. If you look at the Christological heresies of the early church, like Arianism, all of the Christological heresies and the reason why we have things like the Nicene Creed was an effort, I think, to grapple with time and eternity and the, re the relationship between the two. You know, talking about liminality, like, if we believe in the Incarnation and if we believe that Christ was truly God and truly man, then we have to believe that time and eternity are not oil and water. In entering this world of time, in a sense, like, the eternal God entered time. So what does that mean about the relationship between the two? I think, if to sort of simplify and crystallize this and answer your question... Um, <laughs> <laughs> I really like the theology of a late Romanian theologian, Dimitru Staniloia. He has written a lot about time and he has a, a very short essay called Eternity in Time. And there he talks about 
how time, it's the realm in which God reveals himself as action. In eternity, God reveals himself as being, and in time, God reveals himself as action. God gives us the gift of time, and in a sense, God created time. It's not a product of the fall, so it's not bad. He created the lights to mark times for us. And maybe one of the reasons he did that was to reveal salvation as a narrative, as an unfolding sequence of events that we could understand and participate in. So if you think of someone that you love deeply, okay, that love for them is sort of continuous. It's a state of being. I mean, it probably sort of changes in some ways over time, but that that love for them doesn't change often regardless of what they do, even if they really hurt you. Mm. That love, let's say, is eternal. But it's not enough. My husband loves me, and it's not enough for him to just be in a state of love towards me. He has to show me. He has to give me a kiss sometimes. He has to do the dishes. And in that action, I come to understand his love. I can respond to that action. I can receive his love. And I see these as kind of two intertwined natures of God. And and so time becomes this realm where he manifests himself as action in a way where we can respond and encounter his love and the love of one another. talk about the incarnation within that intersection. Why is that so significant? It's significant because in a sense it means that God is not antithetical to the world of physical matter and decay. Mm. Again, I mean this was revolutionary like so this kind of idea actually comes out of ancient Judaism. Okay. Because the ancient Jews believed in a God who was divinely present and active in history, leading the Hebrews out of Egypt, leading them through the Red Sea, preserving them in the desert, giving them the Ten Commandments. Like, if you read the Old Testament, you know, it's just this continuous saga of God's presence in history. Whereas the cultures they were surrounded by would have seen the gods as distant figures, who wouldn't involve themselves, you know, in in the here and now, in, unless it was for like sort of their benefit or something. But they mm-hmm. they were sort of above the here and now, and this is especially true in like Platonic views of eternity. And this world is like bad hmm. and imperfect and a shadow of the forms that are eternal. So this Jewish concept of God like blew the lid off of that. Now, when Christianity came along and, well, when Christ came along, let's say, Uh (laughs) you know, that was the ultimate capstone of this view of time in history because not only was God present in history in this sort of fatherly way bringing about the best for his people, he actually sent his son into this world to fully take on this world. And what that tells us is that God is with us. Hmm. That God is like truly with us and that the age to come in a sense has already come. Hmm. So it's not like we are just waiting for heaven as this other place to be with God. But there is some sense where where those things are breaking in to our temporal world. Right. Even now. And the sort of biblical term for this that often gets brought up is kairos. Um, or kairos, some people say. The Greek pronunciation is kairos. As these moments of, you know, times when, like, eternity impinges on time, where eternity breaks through to us, Mm. God breaks through to us, or where we break through to him. And that these moments kind of exist in the long timeline of history or chronos. And we often think of them as these big salvific moments, like the incarnation or the baptism of Christ, or the burning bush when God spoke to Moses. But every time we turn towards Christ, or we turn towards one another in a self-sacrificial way, or we respond to another person's love, those are kind of mini Kairos moments. You know, St. Paul says in Ephesians, to redeem the time for the days are evil. Mm. That really our task in life is to redeem every moment, to kind of buy back every moment of time from death and decay mm. and turn it back over as love and thanksgiving to Christ 
And in doing so, we kind of convert Kronos to Keros. Mm. Wow. So that's got a lot of really deep spiritual implications to how we live our lives, right? Right. It kind of changes everything. What I'm hearing you say is that everything that we do and how we are oriented in time is towards death and decay. And I, and I hear this so much in both theology and philosophy. And mm-hmm. um, in the last few years, I've just been holding the question of what if my orientation was towards life? How would that change right. everything? How would that change the way I live or um, how I experience every moment of my day? And especially through my relationship with God, experiencing those moments of life. Yeah. And to put a, a kind of practical spin on this, right now where I, I teach in Toronto, we have a school of Orthodox theology here at Trinity College in Toronto. And I'm co-teaching this semester a course called The Sanctification of Time. And we talk about the different liturgical cycles of the day and the year and, and all that. But alongside that, you know, we're also trying to sort of teach our students a theology of time. We start off the course asking our students, you know, what is the sanctification of time? How do we sanctify time? How do we redeem time, to use Pauline language? And I think a big concept we have of that is usually, well, we set certain times aside. Like, you know, when I was in the evangelical world, it's a big deal to do your morning quiet time. So you kind of set that time aside for God. And I don't know if it was just me and and like... I'm I'm generally sort of a slacker and find the path of <laughs> least resistance in the, in the Christian life. But I would kind of like have a huge sense of relief after I would finish my morning quiet time because I did my duty for the day. Uh-huh. <laughs> I did my God thing for the day. And of course, I would try to be loving and and like patient and good, good and kind and all the fruits of the spirit and stuff the rest of the day. But um, as long as I had set aside that time, the first fruits of my time or whatever, you know, I I felt like I was doing pretty good. And we have similar corollaries in the Orthodox world. You know, we have a role of prayer. We have um, morning prayers and evening prayers and divine liturgy on on Sundays and fasting seasons and things that we participate in. Those are your your duties now. (laughs) Yeah, there's more of them. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) (laughs) Which, Which can be even more tempting to think of it as, well, I already fast two days a week, so I've done my duty or this or that. But that's not actually the sanctification of time. Those are training wheels in order to learn how to turn to God in every moment. Not to carry your Bible around and literally be reading the Bible 24-7, but to learn how in every moment to offer every moment back to God Mm. in thanksgiving. Like that's the sanctification of time in any daily rule of prayer or quiet time or whatever, those are just the training wheels to help us learn to turn towards him. Mm -hmm. So it's not like compartmentalizing time for my my God part and then the rest of my life. Yeah. So to be living in that relationship and communion with God. Right. Yeah. So... (laughs) Just remembering um, my daughter, she she's five, and she crawled into bed one morning. It was really early. And then she just said, Mom, when we die and go to heaven, like, how long is forever? <laughs> I was like, I'm sorry, what? <laughs> and so I just kind of asked her some questions about it, and then we got, I got up and took a shower. And then the next day she asked again. She's like, so, Mom, like, how long is forever? I said, okay, well, let me ask my friend Nicole because she's a philosopher of time. <laughs> it sounds like your daughter's a philosopher of time. <laughs> I think Maybe more so. than you. <laughs> she actually ran to get my phone and she's like, here, okay, text her and ask her, how long is forever? <laughs> it's like, okay, great, Nicole, this one's on you. But your response yeah. was so great. Uh, you said, think about a time where time went really slowly. Mm. You wrote this on my Facebook wall. So then I read it back to her and I said, okay, did you think of a time where time went really slowly? And she's like, yeah, when I'm waiting to go to sleep at night, Mm -hmm. time goes so slowly. That's a good one. And then you said, well, think about a time where time goes really fast. And she said, oh, yeah, like when we're getting ready for school in the morning and you're going, hurry up, we're running out of time. (laughs) She says, it makes me so anxious and I hurry, hurry. (laughs) Then you said, well, think of a time 
where you lose track of time, where you don't notice it anymore. And she said, oh yeah, like when I'm playing with my friends or when we're snuggling or, and at the time she was eating a Tootsie Lollipop and and she said, like when I'm eating this Tootsie Pop. Oh, that's so sweet. Then how you responded to that was, in those times where you've lost track of time, those can be little moments where we're given a glimpse of eternity and what Mm -hmm. is forever. And that's where we can be thankful and be present to God. So, uh, you know, I read that back to her. And a couple minutes later, she was standing in front of me. And all of a sudden, she just stopped. And this big, bright-eyed moment happened for her where she did the little crack with her lollipop and got (laughs) to the Tootsie Center. (laughs) And she just went, Mom. I had a moment of Tootsie Pop forever. <laughs> and it was so precious and so pure. And so I said, well, that's so great. What, what can we do to give thanks to God yeah. for that moment? And so she did. She just gave thanks to God for that moment of <laughs> pure joy oh, and delight. so wonderful. <laughs> I'm glad she was able to relate to that because after I wrote that, I remember I talked to a friend of mine who's a child psychologist, and she was like, that was way too abstract for a five-year-old. <laughs> My question. She was, and I, I'm working on a, a blog post, actually, because your daughter's question just made me think a lot about, and I've, I've heard from a lot of parents, actually, who are like, you know, my kid wants to talk about this, and I don't know how to, and but yeah, the child psychologist had recommended that parents, like, get a ball or something spherical and ask them, you know, where does this begin and where does it end? And of course, the answer is it doesn't begin or end. And then to explain that that's kind of how eternity is and then bring them back to the present by tossing the ball or something. Because they, she said that the, the reason kids of that age sort of struggle with that question is they think very literally and they haven't, their brains haven't yet developed in such a way as to give them this more abstract or theoretical understanding, I guess. And so they kind of get into this conflict between their literal understanding, but they, so they have the literal capacity to ask the questions and imagine Mm -hmm. the questions, but they don't yet have the full sort of abstract capacity to imagine an answer. But it sounds like your daughter was able to make a real connection. And that makes me glad. And I'm going to remember that. Tootsie Pop. Tootsie Pop heaven. I'm not sure (laughs) about the theology behind that, but we'll... (laughs) I yeah, and so we that actually that um, opened up a conversation of like, well, what is heaven? I mean, mm-hmm. is heaven really just something that that is other that we go to, you know, when we die, or is there something more that we can be invited into now in terms of how we are experiencing God and the world in which we live? And so I don't know how much <laughs> that helped her at that age, but um, but that's something that. I just became aware of like how thick this lens is, you know, as you talked about kind of the Neoplatonist view of separating heaven and earth, material and immaterial. And maybe you can speak a little bit more to that. Yeah, I I think there's a lot of points at which I could say that's not a helpful lens. You can look at Christology and it just, it doesn't really fit with that lens. You could look at theology and doctrine and all of that and philosophy, but I think really it's not meaningful. Um, Mm. It doesn't lend meaning to our lives to think that this world is somehow inferior, arbitrary compared to the hereafter. If I'm honest, that was one of the things that really bothered me when I was an evangelical. And I say bother, it bothered me not in the sense that I intellectually disagreed with some point of doctrine or something. It really rattled me on an existential level because I I felt like, at least in the churches that I was mostly a part of, there was this idea that, okay, once you're saved, you're kind of just killing time mm-hmm. until you die. And of course, you sanctification and like you try and live for Christ and and all of that. But in this sort of existential sense, there wasn't really any meaning to Mm -hmm. this life once you're saved. Then you get into all these questions. Well, like, why is there so much suffering? And if really we've figured it out and we're kind of just waiting to die and go to heaven, like, what's the point of having to live through all this crap? What's the point of having to, like, live 
for Christ and be moral and all of that. So anyway, it didn't feel very meaningful. Whereas I would call what I'm talking about of this, like offering each moment back to God and Thanksgiving and all of that. I would say that's more of a sacramental view of time in the sense that it opens the door for God to be present in these finite moments, just as he is present in the Eucharist or material reality. He he, he kind of self-limits himself down into these moments with us and gives each moment potential Mm. to turn towards him and enter into eternity. That lends meaning to our lives, Mm. you know, and the clearest picture I've had of this is maybe there are other listeners out there who have ever been in the room with someone who's dying. That is an extremely painful moment. It's it's a moment of suffering, both for the person who is dying, as well as the, the loved ones who are watching them and standing around them. And it is one of the most painful things to say goodbye to somebody. And yet, it is probably the most eternal, like, I lost my father-in-law a year and a half ago, and I was not there the actual moment that he died, but I I got there soon after. And I entered into his hospital room, and I felt as though I were entering into another world. It's such a sacred, sacred moment. I can't believe that these two worlds are so far apart having experienced that. I know in that moment, time and eternity came together to welcome my father-in-law into the life of the age to come. That's what I mean by like these Kairos moments. That, that to me was like the biggest Kairos moment I've ever experienced, but it's like a microcosm of every moment. Yeah. As a historian of time, have we, in your perspective, lost our sacred connection to time? Yes and no. Okay. I keep coming back to the verse in Ephesians where St. Paul says to redeem the time for the days are evil. Clearly there were issues back then (laughs) (laughs) Yes. with how human beings were living in this world of time, how Mm -hmm. Christians were living in the world of time and valuing the potential of time or not. You know, everyone says, well, not we live in like this like post-industrial age. We don't have a connection to nature. So we're more distanced from the cycles of nature. And I do think that that in and of itself sort of cheapens our experience of time in a sense. Like if you look at the Psalms and a lot of the prayers of the early church, so much of them were tied to the sun rising in the morning and um, setting in the evening. You know, it was Christian practice to rise before the sun and anticipate the coming light of Christ, like to awaken the dawn, um, to awaken the light of Christ in the morning. And so there's a lot of ways in which our distance from nature has led to a kind of impoverishment of our vocabulary and our perception mm-hmm. of time. Mm-hmm. But at the end of the day, recovering the sacred and having a view of, of sacred time is always something we have had to work at. And mm-hmm. even if you look at the early church, like the day of Christmas did not always exist. It's not as though Christ lived and died and rose again. And then the next year on December 25th, People were like, let's celebrate his birth and give presents to one another. No, all of that developed with time as an effort to redeem time, Mm. you know? And that's always been the Christian struggle and the Christian effort. So we can take comfort in that as, okay, like, how can we redeem the time in our lives? And, Mm. you know, whether that's living in the 21st century with, you know, our sort of hyper-technologically saturated world you know, or 1,500 years ago when Christians were facing some of the same questions in a very different context. So it's just kind of a human problem. I think so, yeah. How do we redeem time? Okay, friends, let's take a quick break so I can introduce you to one of my partners in the Missio Alliance Podcast Collective. Hi, I'm Doug. And I'm JR. On Monday mornings, many pastors wake up feeling depleted, defeated, and overwhelmed. We know this because we're pastors and we felt it. Which is why we created a podcast called The Monday Morning Pastor. It's a weekly podcast to encourage, equip, challenge, and resource pastors and kingdom leaders each Monday morning. We want to tell and hear stories of hope and encouragement in the midst of this unique place in culture where the negative ministry stories seem to get all the airtime. Our hope is that these stories resonate with and remind pastors why we stay in the game. 
It's a podcast that gives pastors hope and a safe place to be people who need to receive the good news on the day where we feel the most vulnerable. So we invite you to join us and listen to the Monday Morning Pastor Podcast, where pastors can be people. You can find us on kairospartnerships.org, Missio Alliance, or anywhere podcasts are available. So that that leads me to kind of a different question that's related, which is time and despondency. Mm. I haven't really thought about despondency until I've kind of listened to you talk, talk about, it. about it. <laughs> yes, <laughs> on your podcast and also your your book, Time and Despondency. And once I thought about it, I was just really struck by how much I'm given to despondency and how that really is something that lures me away always from redeeming time, but also from from just living in the fullness of life that I believe that God has designed me for. Mm. So yeah, can you talk a little bit about despondency and its relationship to time? Sure, yeah. So this is actually the title of my first book, Time and Despondency, Regaining the Present in Faith and Life. Despondency is an old concept in the ascetical theological tradition of Christianity. And ascetical theology is it refers to, you know, theology that is usually much more practical, but it, it developed really like out of the Desert Fathers and early monastic circles and was this an effort to— This is very to, early Christianity, right? Right, like the first, third, fourth, fifth, sixth century kind of thing. Um, but it was an effort to figure out, okay, how do we— train ourselves up in the faith. Living as a Christian is hard. So what are the practices that are helpful in order to kind of combat the temptations and the demons and the the things that try to pull us away from Christ? So this concept despondency is very old. It comes from the fourth century desert monk named Evagrius Ponticus. He categorized sins down to sort of eight categories, despondency being one of them that over time developed into the seven deadly sins Big topic there. I'll set that aside um, and just, just talk about despondency. The ancient word for this concept was the Greek term akivia, which consists of a and kivia. A is an, a lack or absence of. Kivia means care. Hmm. So despondency is a lack of care or an apathy. And it's specifically a lack of care towards the spiritual life. So apathy towards times of prayer, apathy towards loving your neighbor, apathy towards, you know, self-discipline. It's marked by boredom, a restlessness, kind of this distractibility where you kind of seek out distractions to distract you from the rigors of the Christian life. But it can sort of develop into listlessness, passivity, and Evagrius even believed this could lead to suicide. So it has a lot in common with sort of our modern concepts of depression. I wouldn't say they're one-to-one the same thing, but I'm somebody who struggles with depression, and I've found a lot of value reading about despondency. Hmm. Um, It's helped me realize that in some ways, you know, the things I struggle with when I'm depressed have been things that Christians have struggled with for centuries, and I've learned a lot from them. Despondency is something you hear more about in Orthodox circles just because we tend to refer back a lot to ascetical theology maybe more often than other Christian traditions do. So it's still kind of an active you know, vocabulary word for us. So the connection with time is even though we've been talking about this concept for centuries, I realized, you know, this is actually a mode of time perception. Think about when you're bored. Mm-hmm. And I asked your daughter, you know, think about a time when time seems to move too slowly. Well, when you're bored, it feels as though time is moving too slowly. Mm-hmm. When you're sort of anxious and restless, it maybe feels that time is moving too quickly. Mm-hmm. And despondency is really this inability or unwillingness to be just in the present moment as it is, whether it's too slow or too fast, whether it consists of the thing you want to be doing, or maybe the present moment is a time of prayer. And you really wish it were just a time of eating. And you grow despondent because you don't want to eat. You'd rather leave your cell and go to the steakhouse or whatever. Um, (laughs) But at the same time, the only way we can counter despondency and turn towards Christ is to dwell in the present moment. Hmm. We can't encounter Christ 
by resisting our current circumstances and dreaming up what they could be like. If only we had a different job or if only things were different or fretting about what the past was like, what, what we regret doing and all of that. We can't meet with Christ when our mind goes to the past or the future. We can only meet with him when we dwell here. And so I re-explored a lot of the kind of ancient remedies for despondency mm. as stepping stones back to the present moment. Things okay. like engaging in manual labor or gratitude, thanksgiving, and some very practical suggestions that people even as far back as the 4th and 5th centuries have been talking about as ways to combat despondency. So you're, you're describing despondency as at the core of it, our resistance or avoidance of the present moment. Yeah. And that just resonates a lot. And I feel like probably in every time of in history, there have been easy distractions. Mm-hmm. But I find myself, you know, it's just way too easy to pick up my cell phone or scroll Twitter oh, or... I know. I know. Or just go to the refrigerator or I don't I don't what are the things that you've noticed Netflix. in your life? Netflix. <laughs> oh my goodness, yes. <laughs> um I was I was writing something yesterday, a guest blog post about marriage or something and what happens when when marriage is difficult and I was trying to think of all these examples of like difficult marriages and I'm like like when your husband none of this is true in my life but like when your husband's a con artist or when your husband is a psychopathic serial killer and every single example I'm like Wow, I I have been living more in Netflix than I have. Been, like, I just finished watching all, all the Ted Bundy specials. And oh my! Stuff. And I'm like, I can't think of any real examples. I can only think of Netflix examples to list here. But yeah, we live in sort of this abundance of distraction today. But I think that the inclination toward distraction has always been a struggle for Mm -hmm. human beings, for Christians all throughout the centuries. In fact, Evagrius talks about the temptation of watching the sun pass in the sky. And, you know, monks would like just keep staring at it, like waiting for it to move so they could get to the next time of the day so they wouldn't have to be doing the rule of prayer or something kind of the equivalent of us looking at the clock or looking at our our smartphone to see what time it is. Yeah. So there've always been distractions. Yeah. And why do we do that? I mean, what is it that we're avoiding? I think it gives us a sense of control. We can't control time. We can't control our circumstances Hmm. for the most part. Mm -hmm. And it's like, I don't know. I, you know, I've been thinking this gets into my other book on infertility. One of the things infertility has taught me about time is that it's real. And it keeps moving forward. And no matter how romantic about time you are, or like philosophical you want to get, or, you know, it sounds sort of warm and fuzzy to say, just offer everything back to God in Thanksgiving every moment. But time is still real and it still keeps moving forward and you can't change it. You fold a basket of laundry and the next day there's another one to fold. You weed the garden and the next day there's more weeds that grow. And that you know, dishwasher. Yes. <laughs> it still needs unloaded. Dust. I dust one day and literally the next day there is a new layer of dust and it's like the bane of my existence. You know, who wouldn't want to control that? And to sort of distract ourselves kind of helps us buy into this delusion that we can somehow control time and choose when we want time to move forward or when we want it to stand still. We'll just go on Facebook and make it stand still and lose track of time. Yeah. I'm just thinking of all the phrases we use about time, like losing track of time, or time is running away from us, or I don't know. what are or killing what are time. I think the worst is killing time. It hurts my ears. Because I, I think that time, for all of the struggles, if you're grieving the loss of somebody, time, it's really a hurtful thing because it brings you further and further away from the time in which that person was still alive. But for all of its struggles and sadness that it brings into our lives, time is a blessing. Mm. So when I hear people say, oh, I just got to kill time. I'm like, we should never be killing time. Really, I think that's self-delusional because none of us really want to kill time. None of us really believe that any moment is worthy of being wasted. So when I hear things like kill time, I think it's maybe deep down subconsciously in some Freudian sense, it's like we're just trying to kid ourselves that time really isn't the most meaningful and precious and beautiful commodity we have in this life.
So how do we redeem time? Evagrius had some ideas of how to cure despondency. Can you talk a little bit about that? Like how do we how do we redeem time? How do we live well in the present? And how is that different from mindfulness movements happening right now of being present? Mm-hmm. Um, but that strikes me as a little bit different from what you're talking about in terms of what it means to be present in this kind of Kairos way. Yeah, mindfulness. Um So I'll answer that question first before going back to the redeeming time thing. I know a lot of Christians who are like de facto against mindfulness because it's not quote unquote not Christian and and all of that. I think really this mindfulness movement reveals a longing in our culture for the present moment. Mm -hmm. And I think that that's a good longing, even if they maybe have a, a different way of going about it or something. I think that the present moment is the present moment because Christ dwells there. I think we can all agree the present moment feels different. There's something about the present moment that's special. Hmm. And philosophers have been talking about this forever, whatever their faith background is. They refer to it as the specious present moment. We can't define it. We can't put our finger on it. We can't measure it. There is something really unique and special and irretrievable about the present moment. Hmm. As a Christian, I would say it's special because it's where Christ dwells. It's the span of time we are given to respond to Christ and his love. And it's the only span of time in which we can do that. Mm. And it's the only span of time in which we can respond to the love of our neighbor, give love to our neighbor. So this giving and receiving exchange is really important. It's at the heart of the nature of God as the triune God. But anyway, that's a big topic. Mm -hmm. But So the present moment is important. And I think that we can see in mindfulness, like the fact that this is a universal human longing. So anyway, um, how do you redeem the time? It's helpful to look at that verse in Ephesians. I think it's Ephesians 5.16 where St. Paul says to redeem the time for the days are evil. That word for evil, the days are evil, it can mean evil in like a moral sense, like the days have done something wrong or they're Mm -hmm. wicked or something. Mm -hmm. But one of the sub-meanings of that word evil in the Greek is that they're toilsome. They're full of toil. Mm. And when you think back to Genesis... When Adam and Eve sinned and God gave this pronouncement to Adam and Eve, one of the things he said to Adam is that, you know, from this point on, you'll have to live by the sweat of your brow and toil for your food until the day you die. Mm -hmm. I think that in the beginning in Genesis, time was this cyclical thing that revolved around these redemptive cycles and revolved around eternity, Mm. pointed or gestured toward eternity in a clearer way. Once sin entered the world, time became oriented towards death. It became the kind of engine of toil, Mm. the engine that pointed towards our mortality. And so when St. Paul is saying redeem the time, this word for redeem, it means to buy back. So he's saying to buy back time from what it has become in Mm. sin, this one-way arrow of toil towards death. And so to redeem time, like the first thing we can do is look outside of that box and remember that time doesn't have to be a one-way arrow towards mortality. Maybe Mm. in our earthly perception, that's how it looks. Mm -hmm. But that's not how we have to see it. Because Christ died and rose again and, in a sense, conquered death. So that one-way relationship has sort of been undone. Mm -hmm. Whereas the Orthodox perspective is that more than just conquer, he healed death, right? He healed death and redeemed the meaning of it. Now, now death is a, an entrance into new life, mm-hmm. into restored life. Mm-hmm. That's why we celebrate feast days. We celebrate the feast days of saints on the day that they died, not on the day of their birth. Mm. But we refer to it as their birthday because mm-hmm. they're being born into restored life. Restored life, yeah. Yeah, newness of life. So to bring all of that down to a practical level, yes. because we're human beings. <laughs> what do we do? How do we do this? <laughs> I'll share three practical things that have been helpful for me. Despondency comes in when we buy into this one-way relationship between time and death. Mm. Because who wouldn't grow despondent if you feel all your days are just measuring up to mortality? Mm -hmm. The sane response to that is despondency or depression. So anyway, we have to learn to recover despondency. And one way that has had a really long tradition in Christianity is manual labor, labor done with the hands. Mm. In the early days of monasticism, um, specifically desert monasticism, the monks would often weave baskets as a way 
to train the mind to pray unceasingly. Mm. And so I think that finding a basket to weave, metaphorically speaking, (laughs) is helpful, whether it's knitting, cleaning, folding laundry, doing dishes, like finding one manual task, Evagria says it should be strenuous enough that the mind can't totally wander. Okay. But easy enough that you don't need like your full mental capacity to do. So for me, that's something like knitting or or doing dishes or, or folding laundry and using that as a touchstone to pray. And for me, the easiest way to pray is by, you know, some kind of repetitive prayer, whether it's the Jesus prayer Lord have mercy, or a psalm, a phrase from the psalms that you just pray over and over. Mm. Giving your mind something to touch on and reorient it. Not away from the task, Mm -hmm. as though what you're doing is like menial or inferior to prayer, but as a way to train your mind out of this rut and back towards Christ. And that's sort of a real gift of having bodies is and being embodied. Yeah. So this is a little bit different from like a lot of people will do centering prayer in the Eastern tradition, has stochastic prayer mm-hmm. where there's just stillness involved. This is actually being present to our body mm-hmm. and in the reality of our life and opening up the space where God is present to us in the midst and not where we're escaping out of our bodies, right? Is that yeah, what you're talking about? Yeah. And I about? mean, it is a form of stillness. It's okay. It's allowing the mind, the sort of judgmental mind to enter into the heart, ah. which is a big topic. And actually, that is at the heart of he- hesychastic prayer in the Orthodox Church. So I think that okay. this is actually a form of hesychasm, okay. but maybe not as, um, you know, it's a little different if you're doing a task rather than just like standing alone in a prayer corner or something like that. Okay. But um, So it's bringing the mind into the heart, yeah. integrating our whole self. Right. When you're doing the manual task, I think of it as a way of almost sanctifying that task. Mm. When Christ rose in the tomb, one of the first things he did is he folded the linen. Like the the disciples came back and and realized, oh, wait, he is resurrected. They saw the folded, the headcloth or the grave clothes, and they realized his body hadn't been stolen, Uh um, that something else was going on. And I just think it's so beautiful. Like the first thing that Christ did when he was resurrected is he folded the laundry. (laughs) Yeah, you just never think of that. I hate folding. That's probably like one of my least favorite household tasks is folding laundry. So I try and remind myself of that. Another practice is Thanksgiving. Gratitude is a big buzzword right now in all different circles. It's good to know that Christians too have been talking about Thanksgiving since the New Testament. (laughs) Give thanks at all times (laughs) for all things. I use journaling for this to give thanks to God for different things. I also think humor, this is not something that was talked about in aesthetical theology, (laughs) but humor, I did improv classes with my husband last year, and it really forced me to be in the present. Mm. You cannot do improv if you're thinking about the mistake you just made Mm. or agonizing about what the person is going to say next. You have to be in that very finite present moment with that other person in the sketch. Mm. It is a totally different way of being. In fact, I would often have headaches after improv classes, it took so much mental energy to stay in the present. That's interesting. In your podcast, you gave a quote. It was a quote by Metropolitan Anthony. He said, we hardly ever live from within outwards. Instead, we respond to incitement, excitement. You know, something happens and we respond, someone speaks and we answer. But then he goes on to say, we tend to live so responsively, but learning to pray and be still to grow that kind of inner awareness Mm -hmm. um, through our life with Christ, it helps us to not be so responsive, but to have a little bit more purpose and kind of an inner strength in how we be present in the world. Yeah, I think nowadays we often like distinguish between reacting and acting or Mm. reacting and responding. And he's saying we live a lot of our life in reaction mode, reacting to stimulus rather Mm -hmm. than acting with intention. And yeah, we have to quiet things and slow things down inside to be able to live from that deeper place. Yeah, that's really great. I think this is so helpful. I've, through your work, been able to gain a little bit more of a lens for how I live kind of from this reactive place and my own propensity towards despondency. So this has been really helpful. I'm thankful for that. Friends, I hope you found this episode inspiring and hopeful. 
Personally, I've been deeply challenged to consider how time and despondency work together in my own life. How do I redeem or waste or even kill time? How does it impact my life with God and life with others? Since recording this episode, Nicole has published a journal of thanksgiving, which is designed to help nurture one of the cures for despondency, the discipline of thanksgiving. You can check this out along with links to Nicole's other books, her podcasts and website in the show notes of this episode and at betwixtpodcast.com. Stay tuned for part two of our conversation with Nicole. She'll be back to talk about her journey through infertility and her book, Under the Laurel Tree. It's one of the best books I've read about faith and infertility, and I think it's especially helpful for pastors and companions who walk with others along this painful and often too silent journey. Thanks to all who listen to the Betwixt podcast, who give us a review on iTunes, and who share it with others. And... Thank you to our friends at MissYouAlliance.org. I appreciate you so much. And now, as we wind down this episode, I want to share a segment from Nicole's Time Eternal podcast. May it call you into embracing the keros of each present moment. So I guess what I'm saying with all of this is that maybe part of what it means to redeem time Maybe part of what it means to be time eternal is to find and inhabit the sites of Kiros, the sites where deep time intersects shallow, entangling, busy time. Sometimes these sites are just given to us, perfectly formed packages ripe for the picking. Say, a meditation trail with icons in a forest, or the prayers of the hours. In the latter, we do nothing to move or hasten or create the hours, or the prayers. We simply walk our path carry on in our journey, and when each hour comes, or each feast day, or each divine liturgy, we have the chance, the opportunity, the invitation, if you will, to pull over, to pause, to consider the words that have been handed down to us, and to stand with our head in our hearts in prayer, as St. Theophan the Recluse put it. These are moments of deep time that the Church extends to us in her abundance. But other times, we are called ourselves to erect the sites of Kiros in our own lives. We're called to take the chronos we've been given and, like great explorers, lay claim to the terrain of eternity embedded in our days, plunging our flag deep into the loose soil of chronos, down into the hard clay of our eternal and mysterious homeland, marking our times, marking our spaces, stopping, saying our prayers, being still, noticing, turning, giving thanks, and glorifying he who has redeemed all things. As though to say, we are in this time and place. God is in this time and place. And maybe too, slowly, we start to bring those sights of deep time with us in our heart as we venture back out into the chronos, as we move from strength to strength, sight to sight, moment to moment, prayer to prayer, feast to feast, day to day. And maybe, hopefully, those hints of eternity begin to bleed out into all the ordinary moments in between, until the ordinary, too, becomes penetrated by the eternal. <laughs>